Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors podcast series. I'm Amanda White, editor of top1000funds.com and director of institutional content at Connexus Financial. My guest today is Stephen Cochran, who is the John P. Birkeland Professor in History and International Affairs at Princeton University. Stephen is co-director of the Program in History and the Practice of Democracy and is the director of the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. He's also senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. We've been working with Stephen for nine years now on our International Asset Owner event programs, and I'm delighted to be speaking with him today. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Amanda. Great to be back with you again. Thank you so much for your time. So we're less than a week away from the US elections, which the media is calling one of the most important elections in recent history. Let's let's start this conversation, Stephen, by breaking down the results of this election and the potential results of these elections and certainly the impact of them over the short and the long term. And of course, my listeners are very long-term investors. So over the long term in particular, what are the shifts in American politics that we're going to see as a result of this election? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Thank you. So first of all, let's admit that it's great to have an election. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to have corrective mechanisms or validating mechanisms uh, in our politics. We can maybe we take it for granted, uh, but it's very, very important, obviously. It, a banal point, but nonetheless. Um, we'll get a result. We won't necessarily get a result immediately, but we will get a result from the upcoming election. If you look at the short term, uh, we have this bizarre situation where Donald Trump is effectively the chairman, the self-appointed chairman of Joe Biden's campaign. Uh, Trump is running both for himself and against himself. He's uh, Biden's main argument uh, for electing Biden, and Trump is, of course, trying to be his own best argument for electing him. In politics, politics 101 is you unite your side and you divide the other side. Uh, Trump 101 is you divide your side and you unite the other side. So it's been really quite a spectacle. You know, but as as investors go and and the long-term picture, what we're seeing is uh, the slow but nonetheless inexorable end of an epoch. The epoch I'm talking about is the Thatcher-Reagan epoch in the Anglo-American sphere. The turn away from uh, heavily statized economies to deregulated and market-oriented economies. Now, I'm not going to take a position here on whether that was a bad thing or a good thing. I'm just saying it was a profound eruption at the time with massive long-term consequences. It redefined conservatism, and it redefined the terms of the political debate beyond conservatism, as I said, in the Anglo-American sphere. So, for example, in the UK, you got Tony Blair and New Labour. The left moved to the center. In the US, you had Bill Clinton, the new Democrat. The left also moved to the center. So the massive impact that the Thatcher-Reagan era had on our politics. Uh, That epoch is coming to a close. Uh, It's no longer facing the kinds of issues that brought Reagan and Thatcher to the fore. The solutions that they proposed are no longer being proposed in the same context 
We don't have stagflation right now, which is to say economic stagnation plus inflation. That was something that was never supposed to happen, but of course characterized the 1970s and helped precipitate the Reagan-Thatcher. So the problems are different, the context is different, and the synthesis is different now. And so what we have is conservatism is in flux. We don't know exactly where it's going to come out, whether there'll be a new synthesis in the short term, medium term. We're waiting to see. But the fact that conservatism is in flux is a question, again, uh, is clear, not just from President Trump, not just from the Tory party in the UK, but really a global phenomenon. Uh, the other thing, of course, which accompanies this is the left moving back away from the center uh, to a certain extent to the left again. So left of center is still there, but farther left is now stronger. And as I said, uh, Trump 101 is divide your side and unite your enemies. So for the time being, when he's the target, there is a consolidation of the far left and the center left. Uh, but after the election, uh, should Trump lose, should Joe Biden win, we don't know yet, but should that happen, we expect to see a kind of mini civil war on the left between the far left and the center left over policy issues. In the election itself, policy has been almost completely blacked out. Uh, because as I said, President Trump is kind of like a solar eclipse. It's about him and only him 24-7. And so policies have been put out there, uh, but there hasn't been a debate. So it'll be unclear what the mandate might be should the electorate make a correction and Trump not win. Should Trump win a second term, it'll also not be clear because he hasn't run on any policies per se. And so here in this period of flux, the left moving farther left again, in a place where it was prior to the Reagan-Thatcher synthesis more strongly, and conservatism in flux, we're not sure where this is going. And so for investors, there's quite a lot of political uncertainty, especially, as I said, because policy was not well debated uh, during the campaign. So what that means for investors is anybody's guess, right? Uh, if we get a validation of President Trump, what's that a validation of? If we get a correction and a victory for Joe Biden, what's that a victory for? And so we have almost no clarity on those questions. And so it's very hard for investors to see. And as I said, because the epoch is ending, and because we're in this period of flux where the outcomes are, are less clear, it's very hard to put down bets uh, if you're affected uh, by elections and political considerations. Many sectors of the economy are far less affected by the, the thrust to and fro of the political arena. But those that are affected, including those directly affected, uh, I, I don't envy them. That's a, um, a a start that doesn't give any uh, security to my listeners, I don't think, Stephen, but certainly demonstrates the environment that we're, we're in and the continued uncertainty that, you know, this election and, and other 
uh, very important kind of structural elements, uh, you know, that we're working with at the moment. But you mentioned Trump being sort of the centre of the universe or his universe at, at least. And, you know, it seems maybe if we can try and look beyond that a little bit, and it's, the election's not really about Trump and whether he wins or not, although it's very difficult not to indulge this conversation about moral societal degradation that he seems to represent. But let's resist that for a moment. But really this election's about trust and trust in the institutions and the role of government in society. Even the Postal Service now has been politicised in the United States. What's your view of this? And then again, you know, over the long term, what does history tell us about the significance of this over time and this idea of trust in institutions being being centre of politics and, and society? You're absolutely right. Trust is the principal issue in our societies right now. Trust and social solidarity. It's badly frayed and we need to get it back. Of course, there have been moments in the past when there has been widespread distrust in institutions because they were seen as corrupt or they were seen as uh, unfair, meaning that they were controlled by narrower interests, not the answering to the public interest. And we've come out of those times in the past. So there's every reason to think we could overcome the, d- the deep distrust right now, however difficult that seems. So the way to look at it is, if you just take American public opinion, you have something like 25% of the American electorate identifies as liberal, anywhere between 25 and 30%, broadly identifying as liberal. You have around 28, 30% identifying as conservative. So almost the same amount identifying as liberal or conservative. You have, however, 40% identifying as independent or moderate. In other words, you have a plurality of people who do not identify as conservative or liberal. There has been tremendous stability in these numbers. They have shifted somewhat over time, but the shifts have not been momentous. More or less, this is where the American electorate is. It is not liberal, is not conservative, it is moderate. The problem, in other words, the polarization is not about opinion. The problem is that the polarization is about who or what you think the other side is. And here we have, as you said, a degradation and massive distrust. It's not just that people identify as liberal and conservative, it's that they identify their opponents as illegitimate. So there's been a delegitimization of political disagreement. If you disagree, it's not just that you disagree, that you might be wrong, that I don't agree with you, it's that you're evil, you're trying to subvert, you're against the American way of life. This is the highly corrosive political virus that we're dealing with. And that's your point about distrust. And so if the other side is evil and they have control over institutions, even though they have 
potentially gotten control over those institutions because they've been put by the electorate in that position, there's a delegitimization of those institutions. There's a politicization of those institutions. Normally, institutions that are crucial for any functioning democracy, where you need rule of law, not just elections. Institutions like the post office, institutions like the civil service, institutions like the judiciary, institutions like the media, the fourth estate, and all the other panoply of institutions in civil society. Here, we have seen, unfortunately, that mistrust and delegitimization. So the first order of business is getting back to understanding, getting back to acknowledging that the other side is not the enemy, they disagree, and that the institutions are not corrupt or illegitimate. They are the reason that we can have disagreement at all. Civil disagreement where if we can't work out our differences in the policy realm, we appeal to the voters to make a correction, as I was calling it. So this is widely understood. That's where the hope comes from. Very many people in the establishments understand this, including on the Democratic and Republican side both, and many people in society understand this. And so if we get leadership, political entrepreneurship to move us in this direction, there could be a response. Of course, there are countervailing tendencies, and you alluded to them. We have what I call a polarization industry, an industry whose business model is conflict and, in fact, degradation of the public sphere. The more extreme, the more money they make. The more extreme, the more viewers and listeners and uh, revenue that they accumulate. And so that's a very deep and fundamental problem. The appetite is there for political entrepreneurs to come in and move us back to trust and social solidarity. But the countervailing tendency of the polarization industry is very, very strong. And here we have people objecting to too much power in internet companies, social media companies, search companies. They're objecting to the polarization that they promote. So there's an awareness of the problem, but the solution is very complicated. We don't want to take away our freedoms. We don't want to regulate everything that people say and do in the public sphere. We don't want to put people in charge of what's legitimate and illegitimate to say in the public sphere. However, laissez-faire approach has not worked either. So here we're going to need some smarter way to manage the technological eruptions in our public sphere that balance these interests between the freedoms that we cherish and the negative effects of the business model promoting of extremism. There I think there's a lot more work to be done. A great deal more conversation needs to be had. It's not as easy as replacing uh, the CEO of Twitter or replacing the CEO of Facebook or bringing them in front of 
congressional hearings or shaming them in some way. Once you see how difficult the problem is mechanically, instrumentally, then you see it's not just a problem of bad intentions. And so I see a great challenge there, uh, but I'm hopeful that the political entrepreneurs will come forward and then we'll see if we can initiate a process of managing this polarization industry problem. Connected with that, um, Stephen, is, you know, the, the sort of, on one hand, you know, Trump saying that he stands for the everyday worker, and on the other hand, he's rewarding big corporates through tax cuts, which is, you know, arguably one of his own only um, reforms during the presidency. And the US, in the US, the income gap is about as high as it's ever been. The wealth gap is the highest it's ever been. And part of why the American dream is being lost is that people who are poor are, being, are stuck being poor. This idea that everyone has the same opportunity is not so true any more economic mobility seems to be stunted in the US. So on one hand, large corporations and the people that run them have too much influence and power and money. And on the other hand, you know, the, the poor are getting poorer. Do you see that changing connected with this, you know, the idea of the, the tech sector and, and the antitrust laws? Are they going to be effective in, in, in shifting that? That's another really good question. So the Republicans in the U.S. and conservatives more generally are very sensitive to accumulation of political power. They worry about excessive political power, excessive state power. Now, the Democrats and liberals more generally are very sensitive to accumulations of excessive economic power. And so there's quite a lot of overlap it's just that they speak about different things. We can agree that excessive concentrations of power can have negative consequences, whether in the political sphere or the economic sphere. And so we don't have to have a debate where neither side is engaging in the arena that the other doesn't pay attention to, right? We get the argument too much power on the political side, too much power on the economic side, where's the middle ground to talk about too much power full stop and what mechanisms we might have, right? I'm a person who is very pro-market, but I'm not pro-business. What pro-business generally means are giveaways to special interests that have access to political corridors of power. I'm instead pro-market where I want greater access to the market, fewer barriers, lower costs of entry to market, easier for startup businesses, and successful businesses cannot squelch competition before it's even gotten a chance, right? This is a fundamental problem in our economy. It always happens in markets, economies that people, businesses, corporations, if you will, that are successful, accumulate a lot of power. That's what success is all about. They accumulate a a market position and then they use their power to try to hold that market position, sometimes legitimately, sometimes illegitimately against the competition. So we need to make sure that the market economy is open. 
rather than excessive concentrations of power. Unfortunately, this debate gets sidetracked into debates about redistribution or pro and con. In other words, should there be uh, more uh, uh, welfare mechanisms to correct for the market, to correct for inequality, to correct for the asymmetry of power or not? Is that an infringement on our freedoms or is that a necessity, uh, a human right essentially, right? And so that debate, I think, uh, is not always a fruitful one. The debate should be about, just as you alluded to, what are the ways we can better encourage social mobility? So economic opportunity on the front end, equality of opportunity on the front end. And that means, of course, much greater investment in human capital, including education, the core of human capital. And it means access to education and access to economic capital so that people can start businesses. And it means curbing the power of those who have entrenched positions. Let them compete, but let them compete on a more open and a fairer right, a field of endeavor. And so this is recuperable. We could have quite a lot of policies that leveled the playing field for market entry and for uh, market performance. And we could have quite a lot of policies that enabled greater social mobility because they reduced inequality of opportunity on the front end. Here, there's much more of a consensus in the United States and elsewhere than there is on issues of redistribution. I'm not saying that redistribution is illegitimate as a question. I'm saying that a focus on redistribution makes it much more difficult to enact policies of economic opportunity, meaning equality of opportunity and market access. And so these are not fully incompatible. I'm not trying to make a complete and total uh, differentiation. But nonetheless, I think as a strategy, right, if you talk about what are the tactics for success in politics, there is a great thirst for that return of social mobility that you alluded to. And that thirst is across the political spectrum. You'll see it from Democrats and you'll see it from Republicans. And it's often in a similar language. And so there, that's a massive potential consensus to catalyze investments in early childhood education, for example, right? And as I said, curbing market power and investing in our open markets again. I see a lot of consensus on the, Amer on the American political spectrum from left to right on that. And so if we can avoid in this flux that we're entering where conservatism doesn't know where it's going and where the, the, the liberals are in a mini civil war about whether the center left is, is corrupt and too close to the Republican synthesis and the far left deserves its chance because it has been suppressed for so long, right? In that debate, I worry that we won't have a focus on precisely the stuff that you're looking for, which, as I said, 
is one of the more possible consensus building coalitions that I see. So let's step back from the domestic situation and have a look at America and the world and and what that looks like going forward. But sort of, and I know in particular, I want to talk about the US-China relationship, which you've got a very special uh, affiliation with and, and view lots of views on. But before we get to that, let's talk about the state of global democracy, it's, which of course is no small topic, but historically a healthy democracy rests on free and fair elections, freedom of expression and association and the bureaucratic rule of law. It seems that democracy under those kind of three tenets is being challenged and there's ongoing turbulence in many parts of the world what is the state of global democracy and can democracy survive as we've known it in the past? Yeah, democracy can survive. It's constantly under pressure. The pressure that we have today is not new pressure. Uh, the pressures change over time. Uh, the context is important. The cases are important, right? Australia is different from the UK, is different from the US, is different from Japan. So we have to be careful in in, uh, generalizing. But what we see in democracy is that it's not working for enough people. You know, populism has gotten a bad name because it's been associated with people who are anti-system, people who are railing against the independence of the judiciary people who are railing against the independence of the media, people who are uh, accusing civil servants of being a deep state, right? For some reason, we're calling this populism. But populism is much simpler. It's about policies for the people. It is about populist policies along the lines that I was suggesting that promote social mobility, investment in human capital, and give the little guy a chance, right? It's not anti-system. We've conflated two different phenomena here. And so we need to be able to understand that the reason many people are anti-system right now is because the system has failed them. For the very reasons that you were describing before, they don't have a chance. They don't see themselves as able to rise up They don't see their children as having a better future, right? The establishment is unaccountable. It hasn't paid a price. We had the 2003 Iraq war. Nobody paid a price for that in the establishment. On the contrary, they were all able to stay in power or come back to power. Their speaking fees went up. They wrote books. We had the financial crash. Did the people who caused the financial crash pay the costs of it? Or did society who didn't cause it in the same way pay the costs? We had the consequences of the euro. Monetary union without fiscal union. Once again, this is something that the establishment imposed with impunity on a larger society and for which the establishment has not been held accountable. So we have unaccountable elites and unaccountable elites have led to anger, even rage. 
not just in protest movements, uh, but in people quitting, giving up, quitting the political sphere. And so this is a deep and fundamental problem, how to make the system accountable again, how to make elites accountable again, how to make sure that policies work, not for the narrow group that captures uh, the political positions of authority or the economic positions of authority, but for larger groups. And so populism should be welcomed as a phenomenon. Of course, what I'm talking about is not the anti-system people that you see with Orban in Hungary, uh, Putin in Russia, Kaczynski in Poland, and then fill in the blank depending on your political views elsewhere, right? What I'm talking about are policies that are geared to lifting up your mass population, giving them a lift, giving them a boost, not a handout, but the ability for them to be self-reliant, to open those businesses, to work hard and be rewarded for their hard work. The way that we all believe the system should work, but obviously is not working sufficiently that way or people wouldn't be so angry and they wouldn't be making protest votes. You know, one social scientist in the United States, he called President Trump the murder weapon, the murder weapon of people who are outraged at the establishment. I have to say there's something to that. And so we need to remove not just the weapon, but the sentiment. You see, because the politics can be fake, but the sentiments are real. And so I see democracy as challenged. I don't see democracy as doomed. I don't see democracy as in retreat, but I do see democracy as requiring renewal. That institutional and trust renewal that we were talking about earlier, and that fairness renewal that you posed in your next set of questions. That's within our grasp, as I said. You know, if you look at broadly the implications of the U.S. election for the world, right? This is something that's deeply unfair. The consequences of the U.S. election are felt in just about every country, but those countries don't have a say in the U.S. elections, right? The American public is the decider but the consequences are not solely, not limited by far to the United States. And so this is deeply frustrating and fully understandable that an election in someone else's country where you can't participate has such a big impact on yours. I would say these are the things to look for as far as we can see at this point. There's a change in America's relation to the external world. It's not a radical change, but there is a change. The Republican Party is no longer dominated exclusively by an internationalist wing. There is now a nationalist or a nativist wing, in addition, competing with the internationalist wing. And so that's just a reality. That means that a return to the status quo ante, where America was fully engaged across the world and happy about that, 
Now, that doesn't look feasible in the short term, because in addition to the Republican Party now having a nativist, not solely or predominantly an internationalist wing, the Democratic Party also has a wing that's averse to commitments abroad, right? Uh, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, if we can use that as a shorthand, although it's more complicated than just one figure, Senator Sanders, they're also looking to reduce American commitments abroad. And they're also talking about concentrating, focusing at home. The rhetoric is not identical to what you see from the nativist side among the Republicans, but the overlap is there, whereby the internationalism is not as strong. There is a current. We'll see which is the dominant current, the domestic-focused versus the international-focused debate inside the Democratic Party, right? Trade, how much should we be signing, participating in international trade agreements versus how much should there be protectionism? How much immigration should there be versus how much should there be be focused on the unemployed who are in the U.S. These are the kinds of debates that are proxies for this international engagement or inter heavy forward-looking internationalism versus domestic inward-looking uh, preferences to get our house in order. That's a healthy debate. I welcome that debate. Those who are internationalists need to defend that position inside that debate against very interesting and important arguments. And so what I predict is a continuation of this trend where we have a lessening of the international commitment, not an end to it, not an overturn of it. America cannot disengage from the world and will not disengage from the world. But the engagement cannot be the kind of height of the Reagan era Republican Party uh, or the Clinton era, the Democratic Party, where there was little questioning in those establishments of America's role in the world. Now there is questioning on the domestic side, which will affect us internationally. I expect Biden, if he's reelected, I'm sorry, if he's elected, to uh, reconfirm our alliance commitments, reconfirm all of our partnerships, reconfirm some of the international agreements. But I expect there to be debate about that domestically. It won't be a free ride for him. If uh, President Trump is reelected, I expect a deepening of the nativist trend, although the internationalist trend uh, cannot be eradicated. And there'll be a debate uh, anti nativist trend debate on the conservative and Republican side too. So this is a new, this is a change in the balance of how dominant internationalism is domestically, which affects America's role in the world everywhere. So related to that, of course, is the US-China relationship. And it's probably the issue that many CIOs I speak to are, are most gravely concerned about when it comes to geopolitics. It's probably a bit of an understatement to say that under Trump, the US-China relationship has deteriorated. And you've said before at our forums that US policy was fumbling in response to China and that the differences between the two countries need to be managed first by laying down deterrence 
and secondly, by engaging in robust diplomacy. So I'm interested in whether that's possible uh, under either Biden or, or Trump and what the difference might be, particularly over the long term. And I guess really what everyone wants to know is will there be a war with China and what does that look like and what does it mean? So Xi Jinping is much more responsible than Donald Trump for the erosion in U.S.-China relations. Uh, Xi Jinping has turned China into a very aggressive, forward-looking, forward-thrusting great power. Uh, China's rise is very impressive. One has to understand what they've been through, where they've come from, and what they've achieved. I'm very impressed with what the Chinese have achieved, and I do not underestimate them. But I also am not very impressed with their political system or with their aggressive stance towards many countries, big and small. Uh, Donald Trump's response has been to change the question, to change the terms of the debate in the United States. And this has been a tremendous shift. Under President Obama, the the, the argument was, China's rise is inevitable. There's not much can be done about it. Let's accommodate it. And that accommodation went way too far. And there's been pushback, not only in the U.S., but of course, in your native Australia, and just about everywhere else, the European continent, you name it. And that pushback is fully appropriate. Uh, What President Trump hasn't done is pointed a way to restabilizing the relationship. And this is where your point about, you know, restoring deterrence, but also restoring vigorous diplomacy, right? Uh, China cannot be wished away. China has to be managed. It's a very important player in the world. It touches on every global issue. It is critical for generating economic growth, not just in its region, but globally. It has uh, many uh, high-performing innovative sectors now. China's really important for us all to get right. So what should the relationship with China look like? What is a stable, long-term, mutually beneficial relationship with China? So we've now understood that we need that relationship, but we don't understand how to get to them. So the issue is on what terms are we gonna have that relationship? And what President Trump has done is he's introduced the concept of reciprocity in terms. So our media don't get access to China's public sphere, uh, but China's media have access to our public sphere. Does that make sense or not? Is that reciprocal or not? We're free in open societies, and China is an authoritarian personal dictatorship. Should we move more in China's direction and prohibit their media from entering our public sphere the way they do with ours? Or should we continue to be an open and free society and allow even nefarious Chinese propaganda to enter our airways freely? That's a legitimate debate, and that's the debate we have to have. What are the terms of the relationship? What's the level of reciprocity? You want to ban certain Chinese companies from 
doing business with you, for example. You don't want them controlling your telecommunications networks. Okay, I understand that. There are national security issues involved. But where does that end? How can we figure out where to draw a line so that the dynamism of Chinese economy is mutually beneficial while we protect our own free societies and national security? We can't ban every Chinese company. We can't ban and shouldn't ban China from every sphere of our economy. We can, however, and should ban it from certain spheres. So which ones and under what terms? So we need that debate because we need to have a stable relationship with China. The last thing we need is the relationship spiraling out of control because their side and our side are in a, a kind of you know, hardliner against hardliner, mutually supporting each other's hardline. So I agree that there are many issues with China where we have to restore deterrence. But I also agree that there's quite a lot of room for us to draw lines that do, do not eliminate the continued economic cooperation that's been established, but on what terms. So Australia has been one of my more interesting uh, cases to follow here because Australia went from very deep, very beneficial economic relations with China to a sense that its sovereignty was being threatened and it had to rebalance. Now, of course, it doesn't want to lose the relationship with China. It doesn't want to give up all the benefits of that. At the same time, it's willing to stand up for its sovereignty. So get that equilibrium right. Find that balance. China has to cooperate. It's not just a one-way street. They have to be willing to do things which build confidence, which build trust, which do not undermine the sovereignty of other countries, right? It's a two-way street here. So we need to reach out to them and they need to show that they're interested in this also. And so it's not solely on us to get this right. And it's not solely on us that it's gone off the rails. I worry a lot about Taiwan, as you know, in all the years at Conexus, uh, I've been making presentations about Taiwan as the place that could unsettle everything, the whole world, all of our lives and all of our portfolios. We hope it never gets to anything like that. Uh, but Taiwan is not the only issue. Uh, it is, however, one to watch really closely as people are now doing for the reasons uh, that the Chinese, Beijing, has made it a much bigger issue uh, than it was uh, under the status quo that's eroding. But it's not just Taiwan, it's Hong Kong, it's the South China Sea, it's bullying of uh, the Korean Peninsula, it's bullying of Australia, it's bullying of certain European countries, right? So the U.S. is part of this, and U.S. actions... Uh, have aggrieved China in certain instances. Uh, but China is the driver here, and uh, China deserves to be recognized for its achievements, uh, but also deterrence has to be restored for some of its excessive and aggressive behavior. Staying with the US's standing in the world going forward, Stephen, would another four years of Trump 
embolden the authoritarians around the world who support him? Where does it? Where does the US stand with Russia, for example? Uh, it would embolden them. It's emboldened them already. Uh, they support him. Far right movements across the world support President Trump, and he has taken a fancy to them in many cases. Erdogan in Turkey, who's a malign actor, unfortunately. And as I mentioned earlier, Orban in Hungary, and we could list many. The situation in Brazil, the situation in the Philippines. At the same time, authoritarianism is often not very effective. And we don't want to make them 10 feet tall. And we tend to exaggerate their stability. And we tend to exaggerate their long-term strategic position as opposed to their short-term a tactical position. And so I'm not that optimistic that the majority of authoritarian regimes are stable. That doesn't mean that they're going to collapse tomorrow, but it means that for them, having friends in Washington is potentially is no guarantee of their long-term survival. Just as having enemies in Washington uh, doesn't guarantee that they're doomed either, right? There are a lot of dynamics at play with authoritarianism that transcend Washington. We wouldn't want to overestimate uh, their long-term chances. What worries me is not them, but us. What worries me is, can we get our act together? Can we restore faith in our institutions? Can we open up our economies more again? Can we make our societies live up to our ideals? Can we be the places that we claim to be and are supposed to be and should be and can be? That's the challenge here, right? The challenge is our own human capital, our own infrastructure, our own governance, right? The ingredients for success, human capital, infrastructure, and good governance, right? That's all within our grasp. If we're good at those things, again, as we've been in the past, we will not be as threatened as we seem to be. The threat to democracies is there. We don't want to underplay it. There are malign actors, and they do see undermining democracies as beneficial to themselves. This is a real threat, and we have to face it. But we face that threat by investing in ourselves by getting our acts together, by building trust and social solidarity, and by rebuilding those alliances. You can't rest on your laurels with alliances. You have to refresh them. You have to bring them into the new challenges and the new age, right? Australia and the US have had a very long-standing, very successful, very mutually beneficial alliance. It's had its moments of tension. It's had its moments of more than tension. Uh, but it's endured. It's benefited both countries. It needs to be refreshed. We can't just sit on our laurels. We can't just talk about how we've been allied for a long time. We need to figure out how to get better at those things that we're, we're good at. And so that's our focus. That's our challenge. It's not a given, but it's possible. And we can be optimistic that if we go for that challenge, 
if we rise to that occasion, we have the capacities to do it. So I guess in closing, Stephen, what you're really pointing to is that no matter who wins the next election in the United States, how to actually make America great again and restore social solidarity rests with the people and their willingness to do that. So how can the new leader, whoever that may be, foster that? You know, investors are part of the solution here. Investors have tremendous power, as you know. Where they put their money and where they don't put their money is extremely consequential. They have a fiduciary responsibility, of course. And so they must think about those returns, rightfully so. But what we're seeing more and more is that doing the right thing and increasing returns are aligning. And so we're confident that investors understand the impact that they can have and they understand the opportunities that are there to contribute to solutions while also meeting their fiduciary responsibilities. So I would say that the private sector, which is one of our great achievements, investment capital, the markets that we have, and the institutions that we've created around those markets are also really big players here. Yes, this is a civic challenge. Yes, this is about civic institutions. It's about civic norms. It's about society and social mobility and social solidarity. But investors have a big role to play. Where they put their money and where they lobby with their power and what they lobby for. Market access, fairness, and all of the things we've been talking about this hour on the podcast. So I, I, I've talked to a lot of your investors. I've been lucky to meet them over the years. They're a very impressive lot, uh, really talented and dedicated people. Uh, they care and they're experts and they know. And so if, the more you know about the crowd that connects us brings together, the connections that Connexus makes, the more optimistic you can actually be that solutions are at hand. Stephen, I'm not going to ask you for your prediction on Tuesday after our discussion back in 2016, um, but I do hope it all goes the way that you want it to go on Tuesday and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you as always and stay safe in that crazy country of yours and we'll talk soon. America is unfortunately too entertaining. Take care, Stephen. Bye-bye. Be well. Bye-bye.